Welcome to the Bottom Line Up Front Podcast. I am SEAC Ramon Colon Lopez, Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This podcast is for facts, expert opinions, and better said, just the bottom line up front. No fluff, just straight up to the point. Today, I have a special guest with me. And this man has been a friend for quite some time. And he has also served in the United Kingdom's military service for over 33 years. He is a champion of mental health and physical health, and he's also one of the strongest allies that I can personally count on. I would like to welcome Siak Glenn Houghton to the podcast. Glenn, my friend, how are you? Hey, CZ, good to see you. And thanks ever so much for having me. Real pleasure to be here. Uh, the pleasure is all ours, and you know it's been a while since we have been able to uh, be together in the same room. As a matter of fact, it was December of 2019. What has been going on since then? <laughs> well, COVID. I mean, but the first point is for the last year. I mean, it's no laughing matter. We know that, but it's been some time since we've seen each other uh, for obvious reasons. And you know, I used to see you quite a bit, as well as the rest of the global network that we've that we've sort of uh, built up over the years. So to to be living virtually like the rest of the world's been certainly been a challenge over the last sort of year since we've seen each other. Yeah, absolutely. And as we are continuing to deal with the restrictions of the pandemic and the health concerns that we have globally, it's been more and more challenging. But the one thing that I'm glad to say is that we have figured out ways to be to still stay in touch and to be able to go ahead and share lessons learned, which is really the strength of our pack of uh, senior enlisted leaders. But, uh, you know, today, what I want to talk about a little bit is because you're a champion on brain health and physical health for the United Kingdom. And you have a lot of great connections. You have had some great success getting the troops to finally come forward and uh, seek the help that they need. But you didn't get there by mistake. You know, there's a lot of experience that goes along. So I want to give the audience a little bit of a glimpse of what your career was like, starting with that eager 13-year-old boy that wanted to join the service, man. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I joined straight from school. I mean, uh, in, the, in the UK, even still now, the, in the British Army, you can join at 16 years of age. Um, so we used to call them boy soldiers. I joined as a junior leader. Um, but yeah, I was raring, raring to join the military because I didn't, um, like many of us, I didn't do that well at school. I didn't excel, should we say. And uh, I grew up watching the Falklands War and was inspired to join the military and join the army uh, in the late 80s. And uh, I, I joined the infantry and had a traditional infantry route all the way through um, up to becoming the, uh, the regimental sergeant major of my own um, organization, uh, the Grenadier Guards, which is the regiment I joined. Um, I deployed during that 33-year careers. I've deployed on nine operational tours. Um, I've done three tours of uh, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is your West Point equivalent, uh, where our non-commissioned officers um, teach our officers. And I had the privilege of having uh, Prince Harry as one of my cadets when I was a colour sergeant instructor. Uh, but I ended up as the, the regimental start major of my unit that I grew up in all the way through from, from being a young soldier. Uh, to then become the academy sergeant major, then the first sergeant major of the army, and now to be the first senior enlisted advisor to the Chiefs of Staff Committee in the UK. I've, I've had a, a blessed career, CZ. It's been absolutely tremendous, and uh, I've, I've not wanted for anything. It's been, it's been some journey. 
Yeah, and it has, and it speaks about your experience. Every time I'm around you, I always get something new to go ahead and keep in my hip pocket as a advice from a, from a very, very reliable ally. You also have quite a bit of deployment experience. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so a lot of, I mean, my first uh, deployment, weirdly enough, as we're on this podcast, 30 years to almost the day uh, when I was on uh, our Operation Granby or your Desert Storm. So it's the anniversary and I was an 18-year-old soldier. So that was my first tour. And for me, you know, that was deploying to war at scale. And that was different to any other subsequent tours I've been on, such as, you know, latter Iraqs and uh, combat tours of Afghanistan, where, you know, you're going for a set period of time and what you're going to be doing when you deploy to war, as you know yourself, you don't know what's coming and you don't even know if you're going to come back. So that was my first experience. I then did a lot of Northern Ireland tours um, in the UK, a good four or five of those in my early career. Uh, then went back to Iraq again uh, in the sort of early 2000s and then two combat tours in Afghanistan in Helmand province um, in uh, 20, sorry, 2007 and 2012. And that's pretty much my tours. Yeah, and that's a pretty impressive resume. You clearly have the grit to go with that credibility that carry you to where you are today. And I know that the British troops uh, embrace you, they respect you, and you are a leader's leader's clan. So I'm so glad that you're in this position. By the way, how much longer are you going to be in this, uh, in this billet? I think I'm probably going to do this for about another year. Um, by then, I'll have done just over three years, which I think is probably about the right amount of time for the initial CAP to set the role up so that it's irreversible for anyone that comes in subsequently. Um, but I think by then, you know, having done the Star Major of the Army before and setting these two jobs up, I think I'll, uh, I'll be ready for a change. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be plenty of opportunities for you out there, especially with the, with the initiatives that you have been carrying on. One thing that I will share with you based on our own experience, me being the fourth SEAC, and there was a gap in between one and number two, is that even in the fourth round of having a SEAC, we st we're still having growing pains. And it's going to take quite a bit of time to make sure that we get it right. But as always, we're always willing to provide you any advice that you may want uh, from us. No, it's really kind. And, you know, I wouldn't, we wouldn't even have this position if it wasn't for, you know, your help and advice and, you know, John Troxell before you. Um, and also the experience I've gained from uh, Brian Battaglia and uh, Joe Gainey beforehand as well. So um, all of your advice has been invaluable and it's helped me to set up this job in the first instance. Absolutely. And one thing that I will also mention is communications with those former SEACs is critical too, because sometimes we tend to repeat history and we waste time in the matter of doing so. So I have gotten the habit now to be reaching out to those, uh, those gentlemen that you just mentioned to be able to go ahead and get after the mission today. But uh, your duty. So in my position, I have three things that I do. And I always celebrate when people ask me, what is it that you do as the SEAC? My three things are I'm a sensor, a synchronizer, and an integrator. My understanding is that you have a similar approach to your position and your responsibilities. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I use three as well, to be honest. Um, I, I use uh, thermometer, translator, and courier. Um, so thermometer to check the temperature of the, of the force, the whole force, uh, when you can, when there is no COVID restrictions, you can get you know overseas and around the UK to, to speak to the services. The translator, because I can translate general officer or flag officer speaking to what I would call normal human being language. Uh, and a courier because I can deliver same as you can from the very senior levels of defense all the way down to the most junior 
and then vice versa from the most junior all the way back up to the top. But yeah, I'm an early warning system, um, an early warning system for the chiefs of staff um, to give them the enlisted perspective uh, in a different way um, to how they may be delivered it by the staff, exactly the same as you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of people call it truth to power. You know, I just call it just being honest and candid with, uh, with our principles. Often, we have people that are afraid to go ahead and call it what it is by fear of how the principal is going to react, what is going to be the impact of the conversation. But people like us, we have never pulled any punches when it comes to speaking that truth to power. I think so, it's really important that we feed in that unfiltered information where it needs to be. Um, we're there to complement the chain of command as opposed to, you know, challenging it unless we need to. And there's a way of doing that, as both you and I know, because we've learned that over the years and that comes with experience and a bit of wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a perfect uh, transition into uh, the next topic that I want to hit with you. A lot of people will look at us and think that we have been wildly successful throughout our careers to get to where we are at. But the reality is, is that we have had a lot of failure that ended up teaching us the best lessons that we could have throughout our career. Tell us a little bit about some of those, uh, some of those lessons learned that you gather in 33 years of service. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot when I go around the bazaars and speak to service personnel is, uh, is four things, really. I talk about leadership style, and then I talk about three different types of leadership within their sort of leadership tool bag. And I always give people the example of having an arrow in front of them, sort of going left to right, and one end of the arrow is hot and red and the other end is green. At the red end is the is the full metal jacket drill sergeant, the screaming skull, and at the other end of the arrow on the green end is Nelson Mandela. The drill sergeant is this transactional authoritarian um, disciplinarian, and then Nelson Mandela is the transformational role model inspiring leader. And that arrow from the red to the green, I've been up and down that arrow all the way through my career, trying to figure out, certainly in the first half, where I sit on that arrow. And I think in the early years, I was way down the red end because that's what people expected of me. I was, you know, 30 years ago, I was supposed to be a shouting non-commissioned officer. That was the way you did things. But that wasn't me. I should have been down the green end of the arrow, the Nelson Mandela end, the transformational role model, because that's what I'm like as a human being. And the last half of my career... I've really ended up in that green arrow, or perhaps too much. Don't get me wrong, there's always time to be down the red end, particularly when you're operations, and you know that better than anybody. Um, sometimes you need the authoritarian and you need that transactional leadership. Um, but leadership style takes time. And you know, for anyone listening that might be a junior non-commissioned officer now, um, you're going to go up and down that arrow throughout your career. And don't ever think that you're always there and you've mastered your leadership style, because even now, both you and I will be the first to admit we're still not fully there, and I'll be learning for the rest of my days. And I think the other three areas um, that I always try and instill into people, things that I've got wrong in the past, um, is authentic leadership, which I've just touched on. Um, I wasn't my authentic self at the start, and I know that I am now. Um, I think vulnerability in leadership, which I know we'll probably talk about um, shortly, um, i.e. showing people your weaknesses is all well and good and having them, but hiding them and keeping them in and not letting people know that you failed um, is not a good way to be a leader. It helps others if you can show that you've got vulnerabilities as well. And then the last point is reliable leadership. Um, and it's something I talk about a lot because as leaders, we've got to be there for those that we lead. Uh, and if we're not reliable and if we're not at the top of our game and if we don't uh, you know, apply self-care, self-awareness, uh, know our boundaries, know the difference between healthy stress and unhealthy stress and what our limits are, then we're not reliable. And if we're not reliable, then we're toxic. 
and we're going to produce poor leadership. So that they're the things that I kind of talk about based off or what I've learned from my own failures over the last goodness knows how many years. And there's been plenty of them. Uh, and I just try and instill that into people now and try to help them not make the same mistakes that I did. Well, I think we both can agree that those are the best lessons that we have gotten throughout our lives is when it stinks right here and you work very hard to make sure that you do not let it happen again. But a couple of common themes in there that we saw, because I always talk about humility. Don't let your head get too big. Don't let the position get to you to where it makes you act a way that you shouldn't and that it's going to drive people away from you because they despise you. The other thing is consistency. You know, you cannot be a bipolar leader. You know, you cannot be on blue and red, you know, or tipping to see which way they're going to get to you. You have to strike a balance somewhere in the middle to do that. And yeah, I know that when, when some of my struggles were surfacing, I was pretty much on the red end. I was just an ass to a lot of people. And a lot of that was because of my bottled up anger, what I had inside that I wasn't releasing. I'm pretty sure that when we get to this here in a second, you're going to talk about your experience. But with me, it took the person closest to me, my wife, to say, hey, dude, tap out. You have to go ahead and get help, man. So you have a pretty good story when it comes to your major struggle and the reason why you're doing this mental health campaign in the UK. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how you came to realize that you needed help and what mechanism you utilize to go ahead and make sure that you remain consistent, humble, and effective for the people? Yeah, of course. So I, uh, like I said, I grew up in this infantry environment. Um, that, uh, you've got a very good idea of what it's like. It was a very alpha male macho uh, career, basically, where, um, you know, mental health or um, anything to do with that was seen as a weakness. It was taboo. It was uh, stigmatized. And you just didn't talk about it. And I, uh, I always wanted to live up to the stereotype that I was a machine, that I was indestructible. Um, I never, for the best part of 28, 29 years of my career, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't buy into mental health issues as much as I should. Do. I used to judge people. Um, I used to decide in my own head whether or not I thought somebody needed to go and see a medical professional for their mental health based on what I knew about the individual. And that's just no way to be. Um, I never, ever thought I would suffer from mental illness ever because I just thought I was so resilient and um, it would never come and bite me in the ass. And uh, basically, when I became the sergeant major of the army and I was plonked into this new job to set up at the four star level of the army, um, it was a tough gig. I'd never worked at that level before. I had uh, I had a lot of work to do. I had to make the job a success. I had to make it irreversible. Um, I had to work out the complexity of the army. I had to travel the UK and abroad to understand it. I was probably averaging two nights in my own bed uh, per week uh, because of the extent of the travel. And that was taking its toll on my family. Um, I, I wasn't, a, I've never been a, a great sleeper. I've always been one of those people when the head hits the pillow, I'm gone like most service personnel. But I've always, and particularly in that job, I'm one of those people that wakes up at 3, 3.30, 4, 4.35 in the morning. And um, I've always done my PT early in the morning um, and the American culture, you know, we've discussed this before. That's something that you guys do very well. And I PT myself hard before I went to work. I then have a commute. I get to work and there'd be a number of social events that you tend to go to in these jobs um, that, the, you know, the C-cell community will fully understand. And 
in the UK, they certainly involve a lot of alcohol. So I was finding myself going to events at lunchtime and having a couple of grass, glasses of wine. Then I'd go to work in the afternoon and the evening would be a, like a sporting event I'd go to and there'd be three or four beers and then a, a good old traditional British military curry. Then I'd have to commute back or get driven back to wherever, get in bed late. The cycle would then start every single day. And after about, I don't know, five or six months, um, I decided to set up some social media accounts and one in particular was Twitter. And British culture being the way that it is, I, I took a lot of abuse from the predominantly the veteran community um, that were expecting me to be something in this job that I couldn't be how they wanted me to be, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, I got a hard time and I, I wasn't used to dealing with it. I'd never done social media before. Um, I took everything personally. Every time I responded, it exacerbated the problem. And I was dealing with this and it was affecting my mental health. And uh, there was quite a lot of it. And I didn't know how to deal with it as well as the job. Time went on and it got busier and busier because people wanted the Sergeant Major of the Army to come and see their units, get involved, go to these social events. And the, the two glasses of wine turned into five and the four glasses of beer turned into eight. And then the two nights that I was at home, I then started drinking whiskey. Um, the reading, as you know, is extensive in these jobs. And I was having to read before the next day to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And I drink to relax. And my wife said to me, you're not paying any attention to your children. And my children were sort of like mid-teens then. You're not paying any attention to me. It's all about work, work, work. Oh, and by the way, you're drinking seven days a week. And you're not just drinking one drink. You're drinking seven days a week. Um, no one at work knew this. No one, you know, in the army had any idea. And um, I had no idea. Don't get me wrong. I was, I was buzzing off this. I was wired. My diary was full because it's cool to have a busy diary. Um, and I was just, I was saying, bring it on. I'm, I'm a machine. I'll keep going. Just give me everything you got and I'll come and visit you and I'll go to all these events. Anyway, to, to cut a long story short, it, it carried on for the best part of, I guess, two years. And I had no idea there was anything wrong with me at all, apart from the fact that um, I hadn't been listening to my wife. I was just like, hey, this is a two and a half year job, three years maybe. We've just got to get through this. I'm going to be working hard. Just go with me. And then when it's done, it's done. It'll be fine. Um, and one day I went to the doctor because uh, I damaged my knee running, uh, doing too much physical exercise, too much PT and went to the doc, sat down with the doctor. The doctor started talking to me, asking me questions like doctors do. Um, basically, how are you sleeping? Yeah, not that great. How much are you drinking? Uh, complete lacked all integrity and said, yeah, about seven units a week, whereas about 7000 units a week uh, of alcohol and a few other questions. And all of a sudden I started um feeling this heat build up inside me. It was almost like I was going to combust. I was going to catch on fire. And I had a, what felt like an ostrich egg in my throat. Um, and I knew I was going to cry. And I don't cry in front of people. I never have done. I haven't cried in front of somebody since I was a child. And uh, I knew it was coming. And all of, I didn't know why it was coming. And all of a sudden, I just broke down in front of the doctor. Like, unconsolable. I couldn't stop it. I was sobbing this big six foot four, 17 stone, 220 pound army sergeant major crying in front of this doctor. I was hugely embarrassed. I didn't know why. I didn't even know there was anything wrong with me. Um, and again, long story short, the doctor essentially diagnosed me after a bit of time with stress, um, anxiety, depression, and put me on um, some drugs called citalopram that regulates hormones. And I was on that for about seven or eight months. And in UK terms, I was downgraded. So I, I couldn't have been deployed operationally if I had been in a unit, as an example, uh, which was a big shock to me. And essentially the machine had broken. Um, you know, this 
big tough guy that thought he'd never be affected by mental health had broken and was affected by mental health. And it just proved to me that mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't choose its timing. Um, it can take your legs from under you, no matter who you are at any stage in your career, um, unless you look after yourself. And then um, from that point on, I, uh, I had to get home and it's like a 10 minute journey that took me two hours uh, for me to put, put my big pants on and uh, get rid of my cry face um, and pretend nothing was wrong and uh, got home. Uh, my wife opened the door and exactly the same happened again. I couldn't hold it in, massively embarrassed, broke down in front of my wife. At this point, my wife thought I'd gone to the doctors for a knee injury. So she was thinking I was dying of some terminal illness that I was just about to tell her about. And then, um, you know, when I said I got burnout, suffering from stress, anxiety, depression, she almost laughed at me because she'd known this for two years. She tried to tell me. I just I just hadn't listened to her. I just ignored her. I thought I was I knew better. Um, and from that point on, it was literally an epiphany for me. It was a eureka moment. And I realized that I'd, I'd been ignorant for the best part of 20 odd years. I judged people. Uh, I, was, I had no right to do that. And I realized then that anybody can suffer from mental health and I needed to change my life immediately. And after doing some reading, some research, like you tend to do, I realized I needed to do something. And I got a, literally a notebook and a, and a pencil and I drew a triangle in the notebook and the triangle became my trinity without offending anyone religious and the trinity at the apex of that triangle. I, I drew mind, body and spirit and realized I had to train my mind, my body and my spirit every single day in equal measure, not just my body. And I, up until that point, I'd done the good old military thing of run as far as you can, as fast as you can with as much weight as you can until you puke. And that's good PT. Uh, I quickly realized that that wasn't good PT. And you know, the body side of life now, I've changed it to yoga and swimming and, and MMA type training and, you know, battle PT stuff. And the mind bit, I now meditate and I do mindfulness um, every single day. And the spiritual bit, you know, a lot of service personnel, particularly looking operations, have always turned to something or someone at some point in their life. So I've always been a man of faith. But I started reading a lot on Buddhism and Stoicism and different ways of living my life that can enhance it. And anyway, I came up with this mantra and this this trinity, and I still live by it every single day now. You know, I recovered after about eight months, and um, my my life management and my well-being has come to the forefront of everything I do. And that's why I have to train um, those elements of me every single day subconsciously. And for me now, it's just part of my daily battle rhythm. I don't even think about it. And it helped me. And from that point on, I also wanted to help others, and I wanted to... Um, get into the minds of the Glenn Hortons like I had been before that had been ignorant to this and try and educate them and say, hey, I've got a story. This isn't just about PTSD from operations. I've seen dead people. I've seen grotesque images. I've delivered life-saving first aid and seen people with no limbs. I've luckily never been affected by that. But I was affected by this. Pressures of life, stresses, pace. Um, and it just came and bit me in the ass. And that's why I became the Armed Forces Mental Health and Wellbeing Champion, something I volunteered to do. And from that point on, not just because of me and my position, but because of the collective effort from many people in a similar position across our uh, defence, we, we pretty much changed the awareness um, and started to break down the stigma a lot more over the last couple of years. And that's where we're at now. No, what a great story, Glenn. And thank you for being so humble and forthcoming with, uh, with the details of what you had to deal with, especially with your family. Much like you, I am an early riser. I'm up by 0345 every morning. I do my PT first thing in the morning. Um, 
I too had my struggles with the social media criticism. I never let it get to me just because I had some great public affairs officers that, you know, Christian Witten and now uh, Master Sergeant Mike Cowley, that, yeah, that's not worth your time. Don't reply to that. Those are people that just get in there to get a rise out of that. So again, that is just being humble enough to listen to the advice of others and just go ahead and take that direction and make it right. The alcohol, definitely there. You know, alcohol, I, I, I think the void that was inside of me is when I left the tribe and I was in a totally different environment. That's when the wheels came off. And sometimes you don't even realize it because that's the environment that you're used to being in. Everybody's having one, so it's okay. You know, we're all okay. But come to find out, we're not. Um, I share with you the same feeling about when I first came clean about my behavioral issues. Because it was, it was very shaming at first, talking to a complete stranger about this. And it, but it felt so good finally just being truthful with someone. Because much like you, whenever we do our, per, our periodic health assessment, which is the yearly checkup, they ask you, do you smoke? No. Do you drink? Yes. How many drinks do you typically have? The answer is usually two. And yeah, yeah, the answer is typical too, because most people do not want somebody else intruding into their personal life and they don't want to be labeled as anything, alcoholic, you know, just disregarding their health. And for us, hey, it's just the way things are, you know, that's the team room mentality. But when I finally came open and talked about, no, you know what, sometimes I drink myself to a blackout, sometimes I get violent, I get into fights. Man, when I left there, it was the same thing. And when I had my final interview, the first time I came clean, when the doctor finally came back around and to diagnose me, I had my spouse sitting next to me. Janet was sitting next to me. And it was at that time that I really broke down because I realized how much of a crappy husband I had been for so long and what she had been putting with. Much like I'm pretty sure that that was something that touched you deep when you finally realize that your own family were the subjects of the backlash of, uh, of your issues. But you also mentioned a great point to where you ended up doing fairly well when it came to your exposure to the horrors of combat. But it was something else that actually got to you. And what we're finding out is this non-combat rela uh, non related injuries and trauma it's really what is taking most of our people out. And we're having a huge struggle with suicides in the military. And we're doing everything in our power to try to figure out what is it that we haven't done yet that is gonna help our people. What is your sense in the UK when it comes to suicides? Yeah, so I mean, the, the suicide thing, you know, every suicide is a tragedy. Um, but in the UK, uh, our statistics in the military are less uh, than the national average for suicides. And when you look at demographics and when you look at age groups of men and women that are likely or that have taken their own lives um, because of military service, i.e. those in the serving community, because of the camaraderie and the environment that we live in, um, people are less likely to do so. Um, but it is a challenge. Um, I think uh, COVID certainly hasn't helped in terms of isolation, in terms of uh, people not being able to see their families um, and the extra things they're having to deal with um, as well as their own health has played a, a, a big part in the suicide side of it as well. I think it's important that we um, don't necessarily 
label uh, suicide, all cases of suicide as something to do with mental health, because in some cases um, it can be down to uh, misadventure and it can also be down to um, spontaneous reasons to do with relationships and debt and the like. It doesn't necessarily have to have been to do with mental health. And I'm no expert in this, um, but there are you know, different types of suicide um, and reasons for people taking their own life. But it's something we are really conscious of. Um, it's something we're trying to, um, the same as you, really get after and to help our service personnel and do everything that we can uh, to prevent them getting to the point where they feel like they need to take their own life and they don't want to be here anymore. Um, and much of that is down to awareness, it's down to you know regular briefings and education, signposting and giving people the tools and the opportunity to, to speak to somebody and to present to a medical professional wherever they can. Yeah, great, great points. And I think also on top of all of that, the fact that you have been open enough and some of your senior leaders have been open as well, that, hey, this affects everyone. I think it can help our people open up. You recently had one of your general officers come forward and speak about his story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we have. I mean, I've, I've been doing it for a couple of years now. Um, but you know what it's like? If you do too much of one thing, then it can become white noise. And for our four-star general from our strategic command um, to do something similar and to open up on social media about his own experiences, um, which was actually to do with, um, you know, operational tours, um, was it was, yeah, kind of groundbreaking for us because it then it then hits another community. So I guess I hit a certain demographic and a certain type of people or a certain um, area within the service personnel. But for then, uh, you know, a four-star general to speak up has just shown that it doesn't matter what rank you are, what position you're in, how senior you are or how junior you are, it can affect everybody. And there's there's been a number of people now opening up um, and telling their story and the impact has been huge. And it's just something now we've got to continue, you know, generating steam and, and keep it going because we can keep talking about it, but we've got to do something about it and make sure that the resources and that the medical care pathway is there for people once they do present. Because we keep encouraging people to come forward. We've got to make sure we can, we can look after them when they do. Yes. And same here in the United States, Glenn. So the vice chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff came open about some of the issues that he had and he had to go to mental health for some help. So we are flip-flopped here to where mine is mostly operational and his is, you know, inside and a couple of other things that ended up affecting his life at some point. Recently, I had a speaking engagement, and this was just a couple of days ago, with the Air Force Association. And during my comments, I mentioned to the troops to seek help and don't be afraid. I have a behavioral health appointment next week. Because this is not something that you go in, you get out, and you're fixed. This is going to take a long, long time. Probably post-retirement, I'm still probably going to need some help. But uh, it is just instilling that confidence and faith that we will help them out. Don't worry about your purpose. Don't worry about the hope. We will give you all of that. But, man, just, just get some help. And I think it's very telling when people like us and our general officers are talking about it themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just it's just continuing to break down the stigma and the stigma is still there. So I think we've got two types of stigma, perceived and real. Perceived is me and you talking about this now. That's great. Look at all the programs we've got. Look at these infographics. This is how many people we've briefed in the last year. This is what we can do for you. So that's perceived stigma. That's brilliant. 
but the real stigma is there's still people that don't want to present to a medical professional because they're worried about getting labeled they're worried about being embarrassed they're worried about being downgraded and not being able to go on operational tour that's the real stigma we've got to get after and we've got to make it okay for people to present and to be downgraded and to be looked after and to recover and we both know that the point that you you know get onto that care pathway the relief is incredible once you've shared it with someone, the relief is unbelievable. And then you can start fixing yourself. But getting to that point is a difficult bit. You either know about it like you did because you were aware, because Janet had made you aware and your, your behavior made you aware of what was what was up. Whereas mine was reaching point of crisis. And too many of our people, both sides of the pond, are letting it go to point of crisis. And it's all about early intervention. That's what it's about. Getting in there first and doing something about it before you get to crisis point. Yeah, and it's been said that the best remedy for ignorance is awareness. And I share with you this paper that was written by the Mission Critical Team Institute. And it talks about residue, basically the things that we tend to hold on to that eventually become stressors in our lives. And I want to read a quick paragraph from this paper real quick, and then we'll have a follow-on conversation on this. But the paper says, you are not broken. You're not a victim. You're not a survivor. You have chosen the hard path, a path full of extreme experiences, both good and bad, which leave memories. These memories, in turn, leave a residue within you, which, is, which, if processed, can serve as the fuel that moves us to wisdom and joy. If unprocessed, however, it will begin to build up, to harden until you can no longer move or breathe, until all you know is pain and sorrow. Basically, what that paragraph tells us is a choice. And you explain your choice, your path, and what drove you to go ahead and get after the help. I know mine, and I know the trigger that actually got me there. But with that comes also the, the responsibility as a senior leader now to make sure that the system helps people understand just that, that they're not going to be crucified if they go and seek help. How are you mitigating that in the UK? Well, I think uh, I think it's a great piece, by the way. It reads really well. I think uh, what awareness is another part into this. Um, awareness of your workforce and the service personnel that you lead if you're a leader. So you and I are both very different people. We both face different challenges and we both deal with those challenges in different ways. So the, the, the quote from the paper is a great one, but we will both interpret that in different ways and we'll both process the stuff in our minds in different ways. And I think what we're getting after in the UK now is um, mental resilience training. And I think that plays a lot into this. And each of our services now have got a program where we, we now teach and brief people um, on mental resilience and how they can, how they can deal with this kind of stuff and how they can process um, the points that your paper gets to. Um, and that's that's now going to be in the UK from the first day a service personnel joins the depot to the last day of service when they become a veteran into their veteran life thereafter. And I think that's the way to do it. It's about giving people um, the awareness they need, giving them the education they need, giving them the briefing they need, giving them the tool bags that they need, um, teaching them how to process the stuff um, that me and you have been through, how to deal with their own issues, um, and it's just giving them uh, the support they need uh, because without the support, that's what makes people reluctant. 
And But I think there's also a really important point, which I tried to make in a recent speech that I gave last week, is responsibility. We've all got a responsibility. So you can't, you can't choose whether or not you get a mental illness, the same as you can't choose if you get a common cold. Um, but what you can do is you can take responsibility for it once you've been diagnosed. So if you've got a cold, you'll go, you'll go to the pharmacy and you'll get some tablets and you'll do whatever you can to get yourself better. And you've got to do the same with a mental illness. You've been diagnosed. That wasn't your fault. You've, you've got the mental illness, but it is our responsibility for self-awareness, self-care, to come up with a plan to do our best to, to get ourselves better. And I think that's what the point in the paper makes. And that's what we're trying to communicate in the UK. Yeah, and that is great when it comes to the systems that help the people. The one thing that I have noticed here in the United States is that there's a huge proponents to suck it up. You take it and you take it and you take it, and it's not cool to go the opposite direction to that. And sometimes that's the biggest obstacle, obstacle to get people to seek help. Are you seeing the same in the United Kingdom and what are you doing about it? And that's the stigma. It's, it is the suck it up. It's the, it's the language. It's the culture. Um, but, but again, for me, that comes down to judgment. That comes down to ignorance. Um, and it takes me back to the point that we're all different and we all think differently. And the only person that can decide whether or not someone needs to see a medical professional um, or get diagnosed with a mental illness is the person that needs to go and see the medical professional or the medical professional that diagnoses them. I and you cannot decide for somebody whether or not they need to go sick and whether or not they've got a mental illness. So it's giving everybody the opportunity to present uh, whenever they feel that they need to. But the problem is, is that people get labelled and there will always be some people, um, perhaps, that don't necessarily need to clog up the system and, and access care pathway for mental illness. Um, but that's not for us to decide. It's for them and the medical professional to decide. Yeah, definitely. It's an individual responsibility to own up to the challenge and then decide to get the help that you need. Now, the third point to this is the coping mechanisms. I know that you have your own, I have my own. For me, I love being in nature. I like mountain climbing, rock climbing, mountain biking, just hiking with Janet. That is my Zen space. What is yours? fitness so my pt my pt and nature so nature first of all i mean i'm not the adventurer that you are uh, but i love nature i've literally turned into a hippie honestly the last three years <laughs> um, i'm speaking i'm like uh, i'm like mary poppins and dr doolittle combined into one <laughs> but no P, pt is mine there's nothing nothing more meditative for me than smacking a 105 kilo tire with a sledgehammer or a slam ball or you know doing heaves that's that's my that's my zen that's what i love and that's what makes me feel happy well, my friend, if you're a, a, a merge between Doolittle and Mary Poppins, <laughs> I, I, th <laughs> I think I'm a merge between Wee Man and Johnny Knoxville because I'm a jackass <laughs> when it comes to my to my hobbies. So, but no, hey, Glenn, look, man, it's it's been a great conversation so far, but let's get to the bottom line. You know, what do you feel needs to change in today's environment for people to finally do the right thing and seek help? For me, it's breaking down stigma. It's the, it's the point I just talked about before, the perceived and the real. Perceived, let's keep it going. That's great. Let's keep signposting. Let's keep raising awareness. But we've got to make people able to, to come forward with their illnesses. The same as if they had a broken leg, they go and see the doctor within half an hour of breaking it. You've got to do the same with a broken heart and with a broken head. You've got to be able to go and see a doctor and you've got to be able to get fixed. And much of it comes down to acceptance. 
and much of it comes down to leadership. Um, and as long as our chains of command and our culture and our leaders are not allowing people to present and to come forward, then there's something wrong in the chain of command. And the chain of command needs to look at itself and work out what it's getting wrong and why it's getting it wrong. And I've got to tell you, a lot of people reach out to me on social media and all sorts of other platforms, probably because they're never going to meet me. And that makes them feel safe. And they reach out to me and I signpost them to other areas that helps them out. And it means they don't have to go through their chain of command. And that will be happening in every service, in every military, in every country, because of stigma and because of culture. And I'd say that's what we've got to get after. And that's certainly what we're continuing to try and break down in the UK. All right. Next point. That is good on the leadership side. If you had a young soldier that comes up to you asking for advice, what will you tell him or her? Um, I'd give them the time um, and I'd, I'd actively listen because I don't think we're very good at that. Um, I think we're good at palming people off. And I think active listening is something for leadership to really think about. Um, I'd be pleased that a young soldier or a service personnel came to me because that means they've got faith in me to communicate and to share their issues. If they weren't coming to me, I think General Colin Powell, a very famous quote, if they stop coming to you with their problems, then you've got real issues. Um, but yeah, for me, it's to signpost them um, to the mechanisms that your military or my military have got so that they can seek help. Not everybody wants to go to a doctor, uh, but there's other routes and there's other methods um, that your service personnel and mine know where they can seek the help that they need. And then the last bottom line, what will you tell the next SEAC that follows you that is the most important and pressing issue they need to tend to? Uh, I think that's a really hard one because we've got so much on our remit. Um, it's a wide portfolio and there's a lot to cover. But for me, I think because of the reasons we've already spoken about in terms of culture and stigma and, you know, culture takes years to change. I'll have been doing this for three years by the time I finish. For me, for the next CX to continue um, persevering with the mental health and well-being. It's not just about mental health. It's the mental health and well-being of the whole force. Um, a human performance, if you like. And I think that's the kind of language that we're, we're soon probably going to be taking up, human optimization and how people can look after themselves and become, um, you know, the, the fighting, the war fighters that we need them to be. So for me, I'd, I'd pass that on to them to just persevere and keep it going. Well, and yet, again, some connective tissue there because the proposal that we have on the table right now for the United States Department of Defense is the Human Performance and Optimization Center to deal with these issues. And, you know, we have a comprehensive strategy for warfighter brain health, which, you know, I have a draft copy here that we have been working with the Department of Defense to make sure we have the proper processes and mechanisms to take care for our people better than what we have in the past. We all know this, coalition and U.S. alike, that we have been fighting wars for a long, long time now. Stressors are difficult. We got, we got COVID on top of everything. And our people are feeling stressed like no other time before. So we have our job cut out for us, brother. And I really appreciate having you on the other side of the Atlantic to, uh, to make sure that I keep having reliable partners that I can always bounce ideas and lessons learned from. So, Glenn, man, I, I want to go ahead and thank you. But before I do that, do you have any closing comments for us? I think uh, 
I think I'd just like to, certainly for the audience that will be listening to this, um, is to thank you and is to thank uh, your senior enlisted network um, in the US for starters, because much of the stuff that I've been able to implement and the jobs that I've managed to set up in the UK over the last sort of six years has been down to the help that you guys have given me and the Five Eye partners as well. And I just couldn't have done it without your support and your help. Um, so those initiatives have certainly changed the way we do our business. Um, I think I'd just like to reiterate the, the points about the authentic leadership, vulnerability in leadership and reliable leadership. And if you're a leader and you're listening to, you know, CXCZ's podcast, um, if I could ask you to take anything away, it's that. And to really look at your leadership style and to work out how you can employ those, not just for you personally as a leader, but for those that you lead as well so that it follows on. Because if you're not reliable, then you're not leading the people that you're supposed to be leading in the way you're supposed to be leading them. So um, that, that, that's what I implore you to do is to look after yourselves, um, to take care of yourselves, to recognize the signs, to understand when you're um, suffering from unhealthy stress and to reach out when you need to. And Glenn, you clearly have a strong following in the UK and you ever have a strong following here in the United States. If there's anyone interested in reaching out to you, what social media mechanisms do you have and how can they reach out to you? So they can get me on uh, Twitter, on Instagram um, and even on LinkedIn if they wish. Um, just get hold of me on there and I'll, I'll respond in any way that I can or drop me an email uh, address and I'll get hold of you and uh, happy to happy to communicate. Well, Siak Houghton, Glenn, my brother, thank you so much for your time today. For the audience, we will post all the links to any resources mentioned here today to include Siak Houghton's information on the, on the comments below. Also, thank you to all the senior enlisted leaders for your collaboration and efforts within your services. UK and the US, specifically Gavin and Jake, who are really great friends of mine as well, along with Glenn. But most of all, thanks to our current and future enlisted leaders who are, who are out there sweating and accomplishing the mission at this moment. So if you would like to find out more, please check out the SEAC Facebook, as well as the Joint Staff Facebook and YouTube. Thank you, and this has been your bottom line up front.